Blog Talk Radio. But, and now we're live with everybody. And just so y'all know, it's hot toddy night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because. Cheers to the hot toddy. Let's see. It we're cold out there. It's chilly. Have the top burning. So, supposedly, hot
uh, saw a branch that he really liked and wanted to use in his painting. So that's the connection. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they, they use that, that very, very thin thread of a connection to actually save this beautiful house back mm -hmm. in the 1960s and get when they were contemplating tearing it down to replace it with a gas station. Mm -hmm. So thankfully it's still there. Yeah. Okay. It's still there and we'll, gorgeous. We'll take that win. But, yeah. <laughs> Aside from that, it was uh, gorgeous. It was absolutely gorgeous down there. It, yeah. yeah. So we, we had a lovely time down there, and now we're back, and it's, it's chilly. We got a, a fire going. Fire. You see it. It's yeah. right there. The coals are going there. Yeah. It's, nice, it's nice and warm coming off the fireplace, but it is otherwise cold just about everywhere else. Yeah. So, so you see the, the tree is up. It doesn't yep. have ornaments because, well, Nico's climbing it right now. Yeah. He has the same thing with Santa Topper. I, I will say he hasn't been to that. And the only reason say, he has he hasn't actually gotten to the Santa Topper. It's him climbing the tree and shaking the tree that, that knocks the Santa Topper off. So any case. He gets about a foot and a half, two feet off the ground and he realizes this is not stable. Yeah, <laughs> not not his cup of tea, which um suits us just fine. And uh none of the other cats have tried to climb it, so small victories. <laughs> Vincent looked at it and went, okay. Yeah, Vincent was completely indifferent, yeah. so, which was kind of surprising and amusing all at once. <laughs> all right, so let's get on to our stories that we promised. Yeah, um, so uh, as we've done for a couple of years now, this uh, we're going to be doing um, month of December. We've got two shows. This one is going to be our vic traditional Victorian Christmas ghost story. Yeah. Uh, so, so for those of you who are not aware, Spooky season used to be Christmas season. You used to tell ghost stories around the fire at night after you've had your uh, food and your waffle and you were just chilling for the evening in front of the fireplace. Yep. All of the best stories you start with. And this is told at Christmas. Yes. Yes. Yep. So, and, you know, of course, the most famous of all is A Christmas Carol. Which we watched tonight. Which well, I heard I <laughs> Yeah, but, I, well, there's favorites <laughs> famous. So, but yeah, so famous, it is Christmas Carol. It took, um, uh, of course, written by Dickens over there in the UK, but it also took America by storm. Yes. And so it uh, had, had a major influence on uh, the celebration of Christmas uh, through, as, we know it today. as we know it today. So. In fact, our decor outside is Christmas Carol. Yep. Skeleton sack. Yes. Because that's what we do. Yep. So, and the reason, one of the main reasons this was the spooky season is because we are basically closest to the shortest day of the year. You know, December 21st, uh, the least sunlight that you will see any time of the year, at least in the northern hemisphere. Harvest is over. It's the season of quote unquote death in nature. So, rebirth happens in spring. Yep. So, that is how this got to be the original spooky season before Halloween was ever really thought of as much of a thing. So, all right, so this is called Told After Supper, and we have a bridge stitch. We have. Because it was a little bit longer than we can normally do work with. Yeah, it was written by a gentleman called, now, I'm not double speaking. His name was Jerome K. Jerome. So, yes. Jerome, Jerome. Jerome. That, that was his name. He was a British humorist. And uh, you'll see, um, and, you know, good writer as well. You'll see the humorous side come through in some of the, uh, some of the stories this evening, and it's kind of written as an anthology. Um, so it is basically told by a group of individuals sitting down to tell ghost stories after dinner. And uh, so um, I would 
compared it's a very shorter version and kind of niche version of the Canterbury Tale. Yeah. Almost. So um the, or the Midnight Club. Or the Midnight Club, which unfortunately did not get renewed for a second season. I didn't think it was going to have to be season in the first place. It was supposed to. It got canceled. Yeah, it got canceled. But anyways, we so digress. We digress. So yes, this is uh, an anthology group of individuals telling some ghost stories. We did have to trim it down a little bit. Um, but with that said, I will go ahead and I will let, uh, let Beth dive in real quick. Hi, Patrick. And hi, Mom. Hi, Mom. Good. Glad y'all checking in with us. Hi, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Dana's birthday is tomorrow. Happy, happy, birthday. happy early birthday. Glad you could tune in tonight. Happy birthday, Mom. <laughs> so with that, without further ado, I will turn it over to Beth, and she can dive into Fold After Supper. It was Christmas Eve. I begin this way because it is a proper, orthodox, respectable way to begin, and I have been brought up on a proper, orthodox, respectable way and taught to always do the proper, orthodox, respectable thing the habit claims to me. Of course, there, as a mere matter of information, it's quite unnecessary to mention the date at all. Experienced readers know that it was Christmas Eve without my telling him. It's always Christmas Eve and a ghost story. Oh, it's a scurry night in Ghostland, the night of December the 24th. Ghosts can never come out on Christmas night itself. You may have noticed Christmas Eve, we suspect, has been too much for them. They are not used to the excitement. For about a week after Christmas Eve, gentlemen ghosts, no doubt, feel as if they were all head and about to go making solemn resolutions to themselves that they will stop in next Christmas Eve, while lady specters on the contra- contradictory and snappish and liable to burst into tears and leave the room hurriedly on being spoken to for no perceptible cause whatsoever. Ghosts with no position to maintain Mere middle-class ghosts occasionally, I believe, do well a little haunting on off nights, all Hallow's Eve, as a midsummer, and some will even run up for a mere local event to celebrate, for instance, the anniversary of the hanging of somebody's grandfather or a prophecy of misfortune. He does love a prophesying misfortune, it does the average British ghost. Send him out to protagonistic trouble into somebody, and he is happy. Let him force his way into a beautiful, peaceful home and turn the whole house upside down by foreselling a funeral or predicting bankruptcy or hinting at a coming disgrace or some other terrible disaster about which nobody in their senses would want to know sooner than they could possibly help, and the prior knowledge of which can serve no useful purpose whatsoever, and he feels that he is combining duty with pleasure. He would never forgive himself if anybody in his family had trouble and he had not been there for a couple of months beforehand doing silly tricks on the lawn or balancing himself on somebody's bed rail. Then there are, besides the very young men and the very conscientious ghosts, with all with a lost will or an undiscovered uh, number weighing heavily on their minds, who all hunt steadily all the year round, and also the fussy ghost, who is indignant at having been buried in the dust bin or in the village pond who never gives a parish a single night's quiet until somebody has paid for a first-class funeral for him. But these are all the exceptions. As I have said, the average Orthodox ghost does his turn once a year on Christmas Eve and is satisfied. There must be something ghostly in the air of Christmas, something about the close, muggy atmosphere that draws up the ghosts like a dampness of the summer rains bringing out the frogs and the snails. 
And not only do the ghosts themselves always walk on Christmas Eve, but people, a lot of people will always sit and talk.
because the next recollection I have is that we were telling ghost stories to one another. Because all good ghost storytelling starts with a drunken party. <laughs> Here's that. So Teddy Biffles told the first story, which he called Johnson and Emily, or the Faithful Ghost. It was a little more than uh, I was a little more than a lad when I first met with Johnson. I was home for the Christmas holidays, and it was being Christmas Eve. I had been allowed to sit up very late. On opening the door of my little bedroom to go in, I found myself face to face with Johnson, who was coming out. It passed through me and uttered a long, low wail of misery disappeared out of the staircase window. I was startled for the moment. I was only a schoolboy at the time, and I had never seen a ghost before, and felt a little nervous about going to bed. But on reflection, I remembered that it was only sinful people that spirits could do any harm to, and so tucked myself up and went to sleep. In the morning, I told my father what I had seen. Oh, yes, that was old Johnson, he answered. Don't you be frightened of that. He lives here. And then he told me the poor thing's history. It seemed that Johnson, when it was alive, had loved in early life the daughter of a former lessee of our house, a very beautiful girl whose Christian name had been Emily. Johnson was too poor to marry the girl, so he kissed her goodbye and told her he would soon be back and went off to Australia to make his fortune. But Australia was not then what it became later on. Travelers through the bush were few and far between in those early days, and even when one was caught, the portable property found upon the body was often of hardly sufficient negotiable value to pay the simple funeral expenses rendered necessary, so that it took Johnson nearly 20 years to make his fortune. The self-imposed task was accomplished at last, however, and then, having successfully eluded the police and got clear out of the colony, he returns to England, full of hope and joy to claim his bride. He reached the house to find it silent and deserted. All that the neighbors could tell him was that soon after his own departure, the family had, on one foggy night, disappeared, and that nobody had ever seen or heard anything of them since although the landlord and most of the local tradesmen had been making had to make searching inquiries. Poor Johnson, frenzied with grief, sought his lost love all over the world, but he never found her. And after years of fruitless effort, he returned to end his lonely life in the very house where in his happy bygone days he and his beloved Emily had passed so many blissful hours. He had lived there quite alone, wandering about the empty rooms, weeping and calling to his Emily to come back to him. And when the poor old fellow died, his ghost still kept the business on. It was there, Father said, when he took the house and the agent had knocked 10 pounds a year off the rent in consequence. After that, I was continually meeting Johnson about the place at all times of the night. And so indeed were we all. We used to walk around it and stand aside to let it pass at first, but when we grew at home with it and there seemed no necessity for so much ceremony, we used to walk straight through it. You could not say it was ever much in the way. It was a gentle, harmless, old ghost, too, and we all felt very sorry for it and pitied it. The women folk, indeed, made quite a pet of it for a while. Its faithfulness touched them so. But as time went on, it grew to be a bit of a bore. You see, it was full of sadness. There was nothing cheerful or genial about it. You felt sorry for it, but it irritated you. 
It would sit on the stairs and cry for hours at a stretch, and whenever we woke up in the night, one was sure to hear it pottering about the passages in and out of the different rooms, moaning and sighing, so that we could not get to sleep again very easily. And when we had a party on, it would come and sit outside the drawing room door and sob all the time. It did not do anybody any harm exactly, but it cast a gloom over the whole affair. Oh, I am getting sick of this old fool, said Father one evening after Johnson had been more of a nuisance than usual and had spoiled a good game by sitting up the chimney and groaning till nobody knew what turn it was even. We shall have to get rid of him somehow or other. I wish I knew how to do it. Mother replied, well, you'll never see the last of him until he's found Emily's grave. That's what he is after. You find Emily's grave and put him onto that and he'll stop there. That's the only thing you do. You mark my words. The idea seemed reasonable, but the difficulty in the way that uh, but the difficulty in the way was that none of us knew where Emily's grave was any more than the ghost of Johnson himself did. The governor suggested palming off some of Emily's grave upon uh, the poor thing, but as luck would have it, there did not seem to have been an Emily of any sort buried anywhere for miles around. I never came across the neighborhood so utterly destitute of dead Emily's. <laughs> I thought for a bit, and then I hazarded a suggestion myself. Could we fake up something for the old chap? He seems a simple-minded old sort. He might take it in. Anyhow, we could, but try. By Jove, so we will, exclaimed my father, and the very next morning we had the workmen in and fixed up a little mound at the bottom of the orchard with tombstone over it, bearing the following inscription. Sacred to the memory of Emily, her last words were, tell Johnson I love him. Aww. That ought to fetch him, mused Dad, as he surveyed the work when finished. I am sure I hope it does. It did. We lured him down there that very night, and it was one of the most pathetic things I have ever seen. The way Johnson sprang upon that tombstone and wept, Dad and old Squibbins, the gardener, cried like children when they saw it. Johnson has never troubled us anymore in the house since then. It spends every night now sobbing in the grave, uh, sobbing on the grave, and seems quite happy. Is it still there? Oh, yes. I'll take you down and show it to you next time you come to our place. 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. are its general hours. And two on Saturday. No. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. Okay. I'm going to the doctor's story. It made me cry very much, that story. Young Bethel told it with so much feeling. We were all a little thoughtful afterwards. And I noticed even the old doctor covertly wept away a tear. Uncle John brewed another bowl of punch. However, we gradually grew more resigned. The doctor, indeed, after a while, became almost cheerful and told us about the ghost of one of his patients. I cannot give you his story. I wish I could. But I could not make any sense of it myself. It seemed so incomplete. He began it, right? And then something seemed to happen. And then he was finishing it. I can't make out what he did in the middle of the story. It ends up, I know, however, with somebody finding something. And that put Mr. Combs in the mind of a very curious affair that took place at an old mill, once kept by his brother-in-law. 
Mr. Cohn said he would tell us his story, and before anybody could stop him, he began. So this was called The Haunted Mill or The Ruined Home. Well, you all know my brother-in-law, Mr. Parkins, and you know, of course, that he once took a lease of an old mill in Surrey and went to live there. Now, you must know that years ago, this very mill had been occupied by a wicked old miser who died there, leaving, so it was rumored, all his money hidden somewhere about the place. Naturally enough, everyone who had since come to live at the mill had tried to find the treasure, and none had ever succeeded. And the local wiseacre said that nobody ever would, unless the ghost of the miserly miller should one day take a fancy to one of the tenants and disclose to him the secret of the hiding place. My brother-in-law did not much uh, attach much importance to this story regarding it as an old woman's tale, and unlike his predecessors, made no attempt whatsoever to discover the hidden gold. Unless business was very different then from what it is now, my brother-in-law says, I don't know how the miller could have been, well have saved anything, however much of a miser he might have been. At all events, not enough to make it worth the trouble of looking for it. Still, he could not altogether rid the idea of that treasure. So one night he went to bed, and there was nothing very extraordinary about that, I'll admit. He often did go to bed at night, and what was remarkable, however, was that exactly at the clock of the village church chimed to the last stroke of 12, my brother-in-law woke up with a start and felt himself quite unable to go to sleep again. Joe sat up in bed, looked around, and at the foot of the bed, something stood very still, wrapped in shadow. It moved into the moonlight, and then my brother-in-law saw that it was a figure of a wizened little old man, knee breeches, and a pigtail. In an instant, the story of the hidden treasure and the old miser flashed across his mind. He's come to show me where it's hidden, thought my brother-in-law, and he resolved that he would not spend all the money on himself, but would devote a small percentage of it towards doing good to others. The apparition moved towards the door. My brother-in-law put on his trousers and followed it. The ghost went down into the kitchen, glided over, and stood in front of the hearth, sighed, and disappeared. The next morning, Joe had a couple of bricklayers in and made them haul out the stove and pull down the chimney while he stood behind with a potato sack in which to put the gold. They knocked down the half wall. They never found so much of a poor penny bit. My brother-in-law did not know what to think. The next night, the old man appeared again and again, led the way to the kitchen. This time, however, instead of going to the fireplace, it stood in the middle of the room and sighed there. Oh, I see what he means now, my brother-in-law said to myself. It's under the floor. Why did the idiot go up and stand against the stove? So it make me think it was up the chimney. Then the next day, they spent taking up the kitchen floor. But the only thing they found was a three-pronged fork, and the handle of that was broken. On the third night, the ghost reappeared quite unabashed, and for the third time, made for the kitchen, arrived there and looked at the ceiling, and vanished. He didn't seem to learn much sense when he, about where he's been up to, muttered Joe, and tried it back to bed. I should have thought he would have done that at first. Still, there seemed to be a doubt about where the treasure lay, and first thing after breakfast, it started pulling down the ceiling. They got every inch of that ceiling down, and they took up the boards of the room above. They discovered about as much treasure as you would expect to find in an empty cor- quart pot. 
On the fourth night when the ghost appeared, as usual, my brother-in-law was so wild that he threw his boots at it, and the boots passed through the body and broke the looking glass. <laughs> On the fifth night, when Joe awoke, as he always did now at 12, the ghost was standing in a dejected attitude looking very miserable. There was an appealing look to its large, sad eyes that quite touched my brother-in-law. After all, he thought, perhaps the silly chap's doing his best. Maybe he's forgotten where he really did put it and is still trying to remember. I'll give him another chance. The ghost appeared grateful and delighted at seeing Joe prepare to follow him and led him, to, led him into the attic, pointing to the ceiling, and vanished. Well, he's hit at it this time, I do hope, said my brother-in-law. And the next day, they set to work taking the roof off the place. It took them three days to get the roof thoroughly off, and all they found was a bird's nest. After securing, which they, of course, covered up the house with tarpons, and it kept it. You might have thought that that would have cured the poor fellows uh, of looking for treasure. It didn't. <laughs> he said there must have been something in it after all, or the ghost would never keep coming as it did, and that, having gone so far, he would go on to the end and solve the mystery, cost it what it might. Night after night, he would get out of his bed and follow that spectral old fraud about the house. Each night, the old man would indicate a different place, and on the following day, my brother-in-law would proceed to break up the mill at the point indicated, and he would look for a treasure. At the end of three weeks, there was not a room in the mill left fit to live in. Every wall had been pulled down, every floor had been taken up, every ceiling had had a hole knocked in it. And then suddenly, as they began, the ghost visits ceased, and my brother-in-law was left in peace to rebuild the place at his leisure. <laughs> What induced the old image to play such a silly trick upon the family man and a rate payer? That's just what I cannot commit to tell you. Some say that the ghost of the wicked old man had done it to punish my brother-in-law for not believing in him at first, while others had held that the apparition would probably was that of some deceased local plumber and glazer who wanted to naturally take an interest in seeing a house <laughs> knocked about and spoiled. <laughs> but nobody knew anything for certain. So, by the way, that's just the rule. Do not take home renovation tips from a ghost. Yeah, that, that seems like sound advice. And if you uh, have been watching uh, the kitty cats milling around, that has specifically been mostly Lulu. So Lulu's putting in a rare appearance. Tonight. A rare treat tonight. It's a Christmas miracle. Yes. Vincent's yeah. over here on Lee's lap. Again. <laughs> it, it's his favorite place on Mondays. Yes. Yeah. Nico's across on the other side of the camera, on the beanbag throne. And yeah. Yuna's in and out. Yeah, Yuna's been around. Don't know, don't know where she is right now. So. She has food by the fire. Yeah, the fire crackling. She didn't care for that. I'm glad I scooted forward. Yeah. So. And you fire. Yeah. <laughs> so. uh, yeah, Lulu is in the Christmas spirit, so that she is. But Patrick. Patrick says, yeah, we'll lose the Christmas You want to say hello? Are you coming back? I got you. Maybe. Yeah. Come in. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. Well, anyway, there is a, another interlude, the curate's story. So, we had some more punch. And then the curate told us a story. I could not make head or tail of this story, so I cannot retell it to you. <laughs> None of us could make a head or tail of that story. It was a good enough story so far as material went. There seems to be a 
an enormous amount of plot and enough incident to have made several dozen novels. I never before heard a story containing so much incident, nor one dealing with so many varied characters. I should say that every human being our curate had ever known or met or heard of was brought into that story. There were simply hundreds of them. Every five seconds, he would introduce a, into the tale a completely fresh collection of characters accompanied by a brand new set of incidents. This was the sort of story that it was. Well then, my uncle went into the garden and got his gun, but of course, it wasn't there. And Scrogan's said he didn't believe it. What? Didn't believe what? Who's Scrogan? Scrogan? Oh, why, he's the other man. You know, it was his wife. What? What was his wife? What's she got to do with it? Why, that's what I'm telling you. It was she that found the hat. She'd come up with her cousin. Her cousin was my sister-in-law, and the other niece had married a man named Evans, and Evans, after it was all over, had taken the box around to Mr. Jacobs because Jacobs' father had seen the man when he was alive, and when he was dead, Joseph, now look here, never mind Evans and the box, what became of your uncle and the gun? The gun? What gun? <laughs> Why the gun that your uncle used to keep in the garden and it wasn't there? What did he do with it? Did he kill any of these people with it? These Jacobses <laughs> and these Evanses and Scroganses and Josephses? Because if so, it was a good and useful work and we should enjoy hearing about it. No. Oh, no. How could he? He had been built up alive in that wall, you know. And when Edward the Sword spoke to the abbot about it, my sister said that in that, in her state of health, that she could not and would not, as it was endangering the child's life, so they christened it Horatio after her own son, who had been killed at Waterloo before he had been born. And Lord Napier himself said, look here, do you know what you are talking about? He said, no, no, but he knew every word of it was true because his aunt had seen it herself. Whereupon we covered him over with a tablecloth and he went to sleep. And then Uncle told us a story. My uncle said the story was called The Ghost of the Blue Chamber. I don't want to make you fellows nervous, began my uncle in a particularly impressive, not to say blood-curdling tone of voice, and if you would rather that I did not mention it, I won't, but as a matter of fact, this very house in which we are now sitting is haunted. You don't say that, exclaimed Mr. Collins. <laughs> What's the use of your saying I didn't say it when I have just said it, returned my uncle somewhat pettishly. You do talk so foolishly. I tell you, the house is haunted. Regularly on Christmas Eve, the blue chamber is haunted by the ghost of a sinful man, a man who once killed a Christmas caroler with long and cold. How did he do it, asked Mr. Combs with eager anxiousness. Was it difficult? I do not know how he did it, replied my uncle. He did not explain the process. The caroler had taken up a position just inside the front gate and was singing a ballad. It's presumed that when he opened his mouth for B-flat, the lump of coal was thrown by the sinful man from one of the windows, and that it went down the caroler's throat and choked him. You want to be a good shot? But it is certainly worth trying, murmured Mr. Holmes thoughtfully. But that is not his only crime, alas, added my uncle. Prior to that, he had killed a solo cornet player. No. 
Is that really a fact? exclaimed Mr. Combs. Of course it's a fact, answered my uncle. Uh, at, uh, at all events, as much of a fact as you can expect to get in a case of this sort. The circumstantial evidence was overwhelming. The poor fellow, the cornet player, had been in the neighborhood barely a month. Old Mr. Bishop, from whom I had the story, said he had never known a more hardworking and energetic solo cornet player. He, the cornet player, only knew two tunes. But Mr. Bishop said that the man could not have played with more vigor or for more hours in a day if he had known 40. The two tunes he did play were Annie Laurie and Home Sweet Home. And as regarded his performance of the former melody, Mr. Bishop said that a mere child could have told what it was, what it was meant for. This musician, this poor, friendless artist, used to come regularly and play in this street, just opposite, for two hours every evening. One evening, he was seen, evidently in response to an invitation, going into this very house, but was never seen coming out of it. Another summer, continued my uncle, a German band visited here, intending, so they announced on their arrival, to stay till the autumn. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> On the second day of, from their arrival, the whole company, as fine and healthy a body of men as one could wish to see, were invited to dinner by this sinful man, and after spending the whole of the next 24 hours in bed, left town, a broken, indispensable crew. The parish doctor who had attended them, giving it as his opinion that it was doubtful if they would, any of them, be fit to play it in here again. I forget the, uh, the man's other crimes my uncle went on. I used to know them all, all at one time, but my memory is not what it was. I do not, however, believe I am doing his memory an injustice in believing that he was not entirely unconnected with the death and subsequent burial of a gentleman who used to play the harp with his toes, and that neither was he altogether unresponsible for the lonely grave of an unknown stranger who had once visited the neighborhood an Italian peasant lad, a performer of upon the barrel organ. Every Christmas Eve, said my uncle, cleaving with low, impressive tones, the strange uh, silence that, like a shadow, seemed to have been stolen, slowly stolen into and settled down upon the room, the ghost of this sinful man haunts the blue chamber in this very house. There, from midnight, midnight until cockcrow, amid wild muffled shrieks and groans and mocking laughter, and the ghostly sound of horrid blows, it does fierce phantom fight with the spirits of the solo cornet player and the murdered caroler, assisted at intervals by the shades of the German band, while the ghost of the strangled harpist plays mad ghostly melodies with his ghostly toes on the ghost of a broken harp. <laughs> Uncle said the blue chamber was comparatively useless as a sleeping apartment on Christmas Eve. Hark, said Uncle, raising a warning hand towards the ceiling, while we held our breath and listened. Hark, I believe they are at it now, in the blue chamber. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I wrote up and said I would sleep in the blue chamber before I tell you my own story. However, the story of what happened in the blue chamber I would wish to preface it with a personal explanation. I feel a good deal of hesitation about telling you the story on my own. You see, it's not a story like the other stories I have been telling you. Rather, it's that Teddy Bissell, Mr. Combs, and my uncle have been telling you. It's a true story. It's not a story told by a person sitting around the fire on Christmas Eve, drinking whiskey punch. It's a record of events that actually happened. 
Indeed, it is not a story at all in the commonly accepted meaning of the word. It is a report. It is, I feel, almost out of place in the continuum of tales. It's more suitable to a biography or an English history. There is another thing that makes it difficult for me to tell you the story, and that is that it's all about myself. And in telling you the story, I shall have to keep talking about myself and talking about myself. It's something I have a strong objection to doing. Under ordinary circumstances, therefore, I should not tell you the story at all. I should say it to myself. No, it's a good story. It's a moral story. It's a strange, weird, enthralling sort of story. And the public, I know, would like to hear it. And I should like to tell it to them. But it's all about myself, about what I said, about what I saw, and what I did. And what I cannot do. My retiring, anti-egotistical nature will not permit me to talk about this way about myself. But in the circumstances surrounding the story are not ordinary, and there are no reasons for me, in spite of my modesty, to rather welcome the opportunity of relating it. As I stated, at the beginning, there has been an unpleasantness in our family over this party of ours. And as regards to myself in particular, my share of the events I am now about to set forth, gross injustice has been done to me. As a means of replacing my chapter in this proper light, I feel that it's my best course to give a simple, dignified narration of plain facts and allow the unprejudiced to judge for themselves. My chief object, I can recommend, is to clear myself from unjust aspirations. Spurred by this motive, I find that I'm unable to overcome my usual repugnance to talking about myself and can thus tell my story. As soon as my uncle had finished his story, I, as I've already told you, rose up and said that I was asleep in the blue chamber that very night. My uncle sprang up and cried, never, you shall never put yourself in this deadly peril. Besides, the bed is not made. Never mind the bed, I said. I have lived in furnished apartments for gentlemen, and I have been accustomed to sleep on beds that have never been made from one year's end to the other. Do not thwart me in my resolve. I am young. I have had a clear conscience for now for over a month. The spirits will not harm me. I may even do them some little good and introduce, uh, induce them to be quiet and to go away. Besides, I should like to see the show. Saying which, I sat down again. They tried to dissuade me from what they termed to be my foolhardy enterprise, but I remained firm. Plain my privilege, I will forget. The guests always sleep in the haunted chamber on Christmas Eve. It is his benefit. They said that if I could put put it on that footing, they had, of course, no answer, as they lighted a candle for me and accompanied me upstairs in a body. Whether elevated by the feeling that I was doing a noble action or animated by a mere general consciousness of rectitude, it is not for me to say, but I went upstairs that night with a remarkable brilliancy. It was as much as I could do not to stop on the landing when I came to it. I felt I wanted to go up to the roof. But with the help of the banisters, I restrained my ambition and wished them all good night. Went in and shut the door. Things began to go wrong for me from the very first. The candle, t- the candle tumbled out of the candlestick before my hand was off the lock. It kept on tumbling out of the candlestick, and every time it, I picked it up and put it back in, it tumbled out again. I have never had such a slippery candle. 
I gave up and attempting to use the candlestick at last and carried the candle about in my hand. And even then, it would not keep upright. So I got wild and threw it out of the window and undressed and went to bed in the dark. I did not go to sleep. I did not feel sleepy at all. I lay on my back, looking up at the ceiling, thinking of things. I wish I could remember some of the ideas that came to me as I lay there, because they were so amusing. I laughed at them myself until the bed shook. I had been lying like this for half an hour or so, and had forgotten all about the ghost. When casually casting my eyes around the room, I noticed for the first time a singularly contented-looking phantom sitting in the easy chair by the fire, smoking the ghost of a long clay pipe. I fancied for a moment, as most people would under similar circumstances, that I must be dreaming. I sat up, and I rubbed my eyes. Nope, it was a ghost. Clear enough. I could see the back of the chair through his body. He looked over towards me, took a shadowy pipe from his lips, and nodded. The most surprising part of the whole thing to me was that I did not feel the least bit alarmed. If anything, I was rather pleased to see him. It was company. I said, good evening. It's been a cold day. He said he had not noticed it himself, but I dare say I was right. We remained silent for a few seconds, and then, wishing to put up, put, put this pleasantly, I said, I believe I have the honor of addressing the ghost of the gentleman who had an accident with a caroler. He smiled, and I said, it was very good of me to remember it. One caroler was not much to boast of, but still, every little helped. I was somewhat staggered at his answer, and I expected a groan of remorse. The ghost appeared, on the contrary, to be rather conceited over the business. I thought that, well, as he had taken my reference to the caroler so quietly, perhaps he would not be offended if I questioned him about the organ grinder. I felt curious about that poor boy. It's true. Is it true, I asked, that you put a hand in the, you had a hand in the death of that Italian peasant lad who came to the town once with a or- barrel organ that played nothing but scotch airs? He quite fired up. A hand in it, he said indignantly. Who has dared to pretend that he assisted me? I murdered that youth myself. Nobody helped me. Alone, I did it. Show me the man who says I didn't. I called him. I assured him that I had Never in my mind doubted he was the real and only assassin. And I went on and asked him what he had done with the body of the cornet player he had killed. <laughs> that would be even not helping the assassin, apparently. Um, he said, to which one might you be alluding? Oh, there were more then, I inquired. He smiled, gave a little cough. And he did not like to appear to be boasting, but counting the trombones, there were seven. <laughs> Dear me, I replied, you must have a quite a busy time of it, one way and another. He said that perhaps he ought not be the one to say so, but really speaking, in ordinary middle society, he thought there were a few ghosts who could go back upon a lifetime of more sustained usefulness. He puffed away in silence for a few minutes, and while I sat watching him, I had never seen a ghost smoking a pipe before <laughs> that I could remember, and it interested me. I asked him what tobacco he used. He said the ghost of pet cabbages as a rule. He explained that the ghost of all the tobacco that man smoked in life belonged to him and uh, when he became dead. And he said himself had uh, smoked a good deal of cut cabbages when he was alive, so there was 
of course, well supplied with the ghost of it now. I observed that it was a useful thing to know that, that I made up my mind to smoke as much tobacco as I could before I died. Future now. I thought I might as well start at once, so I said I would join him in a pipe. And he said, oh, do, old man. And I reached over and got out the necessary paraphernalia from my coat pocket and lit up. We grew quite chummy after that, as he told me of all of his crimes. He said he had lived next door once to a young lady who was learning to play the guitar, while a gentleman who practiced on a bass viola lived opposite. And with a fiendish cunning, he introduced these two unsuspecting young people to one another and persuaded them to elope with each other against their parents' wishes and to take their musical instruments with them. And they had done so. And before the honeymoon was over, she had broken his head with the bass oil, and she, he had tried to cram the guitar down her throat <laughs> and injured her for life. My friend said he used his uh, muffin men in the passage and then snuffed them out with their own wares until they burst and died. He said he had quieted 18 that way. Young men and women who recited long, dreary poems at evening parties Cowboy youths who walked about the streets late at night playing concordias. He used the, to get them together and poison them in batches of ten, so to save expense. The park orators, temperance lecturers, he used to shut up in six in a small room with a glass of water and a collection box apiece and let them talk each other to death. It takes one good to listen to him. I asked him when he expected the other ghosts. The ghosts of the weight and the cornet player and the German band and the, uh, that all Uncle John had mentioned, he smiled and said they would never come again, any of them. I said, why? Isn't it true that they meet you here every Christmas Eve for a row? He said it was true every Christmas Eve for 25 years. He has had, had he and they fought in that room, but they would never trouble him nor anyone else again, one by one. He had laid them all out, spoiled, utterly useless for all hunting purposes. He had finished off the last German band ghost that evening, just before I came upstairs. He had thrown what was left of him out through the slit between the window sashes. He said he would never be calling a ghost again. I suppose you will still come yourself as usual? They would be sorry to miss you, I know. Oh, I don't know, he replied. There's nothing much to come for now, unless, he added kindly, you're going to be here. I'll come if you will sleep here next Christmas Eve. I've taken a liking to you, he continued. You don't fly off screeching when you see a party, and your hair doesn't stand on end. You've no idea how sickly I am of seeing people's hair stand on end. <laughs> Just then, a slight noise reached us from the yard below. He started to turn and deathly black. You are ill, I cried, springing towards him. Tell me, what is the best thing to do for you? Shall I drink some brandy and give you the ghost of it? Yes. He remained silent, listening intently for a moment, and then he gave a sigh of relief, and the shade came back to his cheek. It's all right. I was afraid it was the rooster. Oh, it's too early for that, I said. Why, it's only the middle of the night. Oh, that doesn't make any difference with those cursed birds, he replied bitterly. They would soon crow in the middle of the night as they would any other time. Sooner, as they thought, it would spoil a chap's evening out. I believe they do it on purpose. 
He said a friend of his, the ghost of a man he, who had killed a water rate collector, used to haunt a house in Long Acre where they kept fowls in the cellar. And every time a policeman went by and flashed his bullseye down the grating, the old rooster there would fancy it the sun and start crowing like mad. When, of course, the poor ghost had to dissolve and it would, in consequence, get back home, sometimes as early as 1 o'clock in the morning, purring fearfully because it had only been out for an hour. I agreed. That definitely seems unfair. Oh, it's absurd arrangement altogether, he continued quite angrily. I can't imagine what our old man could have been thinking when he made it. As I said to him over and over again, have a safe time, let everybody stick to it. Six, four o'clock in the summer, and six in the winter, mm-hmm. and then one would know what one was about. How do you manage when there isn't any rooster handy, I inquired. He was on the point of replying when, again, he started and listened. This time I distinctly heard Mr. Bell's rooster next door crow twice. There you are, he said, raising and reaching for his hat. That's the sort of thing we have to put up with it. What is the time? I looked at my watch and found it was half past three. I thought as much, he muttered. I'll wring that blessed bird's neck if I get a hold of it. Then he prepared to go. If you can wait half a minute, I said getting out of bed, I'll go a bit with you. That's very good of you, he rejoined. Pausing, but it seems unkind to drag you out. Not at all, I replied. I shall like a walk. And I partially dressed myself and took my umbrella. He put his arms through mine, and we went out together. Just by the gate, we met Jones, one of the local constables. Good night, Jones, I said. Always feel affable at Christmas time. Good night, sir, answering the man a little gruffly, I thought. May I ask what you're doing off? Oh, it's all right, I responded with a wave of my umbrella. I'm just seeing my friend part of the way home. <laughs> what friend? Ah, of course, I forgot. He's invisible to you. He's the ghost of the gentleman that killed the <laughs> I'm just going to go to the corner with him. Uh, I don't think I would if I were you, sir, Joan said severely. If you'll take my advice and take it back to your friend here and then go back indoors. Perhaps you're not aware that you're walking about with nothing on but a nightshirt and a pair of boots. And an opera hat. Where are your trousers, sir? I did not like the man's manner at all, and I said, Jones, I don't want to have to report you, but it seems to me you've been drinking. My trousers are where a man's trousers ought to be, on his legs. I distinctly remember putting them on. Well, sir, you haven't got them on now. He replied. I beg your pardon, I replied. I tell you I have. I think I ought to know. I think so too, sir, he answered, but you evidently don't. Now, come along indoors with me, and don't let's have any more of it. Uncle John came to the door at this point, and having been awakened and exposed by the altercation, at the same moment, Aunt Maria appeared at the window in her nightcap. I explained the constable's mistake to them, treating the matter as lightly as I could, as to not get, in, get the man into trouble, and I turned for confirmation to the ghost. He was gone. He had left me without a word, without even saying goodbye. It's so it struck me as so unkind his having gone off that way that I burst into tears and Uncle John came out and led me back into the house. Upon reaching the room, I discovered that Jones was right. I had not put on my trousers after all. They were still hanging over the bed rail. I suppose to my anxiety not to keep the ghost waiting, I must have forgotten them. Such are the plain facts of the case, of which, in most doubtless to the healthy, charitable mind, appear impossible that calamity could spring, but it has. Persons 
I say person. I profess themselves unable to understand the simple circumstances here and narrated, except that in the light of explanations, at once misleading and insulting. Slurs have been cast and aspirations have been made on me by those of my own flesh and blood. I bear no ill feeling. I merely say, as I have said, set forth this statement for the purpose of clearing my character from the injurious suspicion. <laughs> How much did he drink? Is what I want to know. Because <laughs> pants often get forgotten when you've drunk that much. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, that does bring us to the end of uh, Told, After, Told After Supper by Jerome K. Jerome. Uh, as we, uh, as it promised at the beginning, clearly, well, it certainly is a collection of, uh, hello. Are you okay, Nico? Uh, he's, he's fine. Let that bounce right off the screen. Anyways, but, um, I saw fire. Collection, <laughs> of, uh, collection of Christmas ghosts stories, if you will, Victorian ghost stories, but uh, definitely a little humorous twist on it. As, uh, we were a little dark last year. We decided to go for the humorous year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, <laughs> he probably drank enough to see the Green Fairy. <laughs> probably. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, yeah, the, the kitties, you could say they are holding Beth up. We got, I got Nico right here. here right now. Come here, buddy. Somebody wants to say hi. Say hi, Nico. Say hi, Nico. Like, I don't want to say hi. <laughs> I, was, I was watching the fire. Keep telling them he needs to give me a lot of numbers. Yeah, but, yeah, so definitely uh, this, puts, this one's right up there with uh, one, of my, my, one of my new favorite yeah. uh, Victorian Christmas ghost stories. Yeah, I, I like the funny one. <laughs> it, it, it provides an excellent balance to my... Uh, my my long-standing favorite, the kit bag. Yeah, the, the kit bag is great. The, the kit bag is a great story. It's definitely on the grim side, but it's a very it's, it's a great story. I it love is. that one. So nice, Ooh. nice balance. A little bit of the dark, a little bit of humorous. So I'm sorry, I yawned. <laughs> so, but yeah, so that is uh, that is it for this evening. And that was uh, the last show that we have for you before uh, Christmas. Yeah, so we'll be back on the 26th. The day after actually, Christmas. Christmas or ghost stories that happen on and around Christmas. Yeah. So it's um, well, whereas this was very much a fictional piece of work, we'll be getting back to our um, the kind of the, the I guess you could say the, the experiences that people have had in the real world, if you will, and uh, just going to be those ghost stories that uh, ghost stories, ghostly experiences that have taken place around the Christmas holiday. So. Yes. Good way to kick off the uh, the the twelve days of Christmas there on December twenty sixth. So, but yeah, we're uh, we'll be uh, looking forward to seeing y'all then. And in the meantime, um, yeah, we'll, we we we're got tours Fridays and Saturdays. Uh, except for next week, we're doing Thursday and Friday, and the week after Thursday and Friday because of the holidays. Oh, so, uh, I'm not making people work on Christmas and New Year's. Yeah, we'd be doing it ourselves. <laughs> we, we'd only be making ourselves do it. But anyway. No. Not happening. That's a sad point. So, but yeah, you can come out. You can see us this Friday or Saturday, next Thursday or Friday, or the following Thursday cool. or Friday. So, and then we'll be in 2023. Mm-hmm. So, and that schedule for next year is posted online. It is. So we're still working on filling in February a little bit, but other than February, um, uh, I think everything's uh, all charted out through October already. 
Yeah, so we got a lot going on. But yeah, so kind of thing. We might we'll we'll see. We 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 haven't confirmed it hundred percent again. We might be doing a reading of this again in person at Richbrow. Yeah, um, assuming that we get that hashed out, that will be um getting posted on our Facebook page. But um yeah. Back from that. Um, uh, and then, of course, we'll be at Paracon uh, at Hanover Tavern, January 21st and 2nd, something like that. Close to that. But, yeah, so Hanover Tavern Paracon is coming up. It's about uh, six weeks out, roughly. Yeah, uh, yeah 21st. 21st. Mainly the 21st. So Hanover Tavern Paracon yeah. on the 21st. And I will be at the birthday bash for Poe that night uh, and also giving tours that night. Yeah. Mainly giving tours that night. But, yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So if, you, uh, if you don't already follow the Poe Museum, please go check them out because... Um, yeah, the 100-year anniversary for the museum and uh, they got the big Poe birthday bash in January. So... They got a lot coming up in the uh, uh, in the new year, so go check out the Poe Museum. So a lot going on there, and oh, and uh, uh, now uh, Patrick, now if we're not doing an in-person reading on the 26th, um, on the 26th we'll be doing this. Yes. So um, yeah, the 22nd is when we're hoping to do the in-person reading of what we just did um, down at Richfield. But yeah. again, we got to just. Get the final confirmation on that. Yes, so, but yeah, that's kind of a, it's kind of like that all. Yeah, it, it, we're not used to being this like. Yeah, we'll, we'll take it. We need the break. We need some time to review what we uh, brought back from Key West and um, and honestly, just to catch a breath for ourselves. And do some new research. Yeah, but with that said, we do um, always appreciate hearing from yeah. y'all. Feel free to drop us a note anytime, you know, Facebook Messenger or whatever have you. Um, we're happy to hear from y'all. Let's chat up the spooky stuff. And we'll see you in two weeks. And happy holidays. Yes. Happy holidays. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. Happy Yule. Solstice. Solstice. All the good stuff. All of it. All of it. So, yes. Think that's it? That's it. Now I'm just rambling? You're rambling. Okay. Because I have a donkey boy. All right. With that said, good night, y'all. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.